Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is episode 150 of Historically Thinking. John Battista Vico first published his masterwork, The New Science, in 1725. He revised it twice more before he died. It was intended to be nothing less than a reinterpretation of the history of human civilization, resulting in a new science of history. Its influence was somewhat less than Vico might have hoped. It took more than a century and a half after its first publication before the book really emerged from obscurity. Arguably, it was in the late 20th century that Vico's influence was finally felt, and perhaps at no other time has his work been as widely read as it is now. Yet the new science is not an easy work to read. Obscure allusions, an unusual method, eccentric terminology are all combined along with the occasional stunning aphorism or turn of phrase or brilliant insight that land on the reader like a hammer. With me to discuss Gian Vantista Vico, The New Science, and Vico's Project are the two most recent translators of The New Science, an edition published last month by Yale University Press. Jason Taylor is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Regis College, and Robert Miner is Professor of Philosophy at Baylor University. Gentlemen, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank well, you thank very much. Good to be here. So, um, as I was saying to you before we started, uh, I like to think that every 50 episodes or so, I, I do something that defines the podcast. Um, episode 100 was talking about historical thinking, uh, historically thinking with the guy who had been in episode one and also with Sam Weinberg, who is sort of the patron saint of this podcast. And now we're doing Giambattista Vico. So this is something completely different. And um, if uh, uh, I had an advisor for this podcast, they might have warned me this is going to finally des destroy listenership. I just want to warn this is, could be the <laughs> this could be one of the more difficult podcasts. But first of all, before we get into everything else, who is uh, Robert Mine? Who is Giambattista Vico? What's the who's who version of his life? Oh, the who's who's version of the life of yeah. Vico. Well, he's, he came from Naples in uh, the south of Italy, and he lived virtually his entire life in Naples. Uh, he was born in 1668, about 20 years after the death of Descartes. Uh, the reason I mention that is sometimes people will mistakenly uh, assign Vico to the Renaissance, but um, chronologically speaking, at least, he really is an early modern thinker. He, he's the generation after Descartes and Pascal. And um, as you observed uh, in your introduction, Al, um, Vico's masterwork is the new science. So that is the thing that he is uh, the best known for. But uh, I, I think it's important to just be aware that his early works are also quite remarkable. Um, as a professor of rhetoric at the University of Naples, he was in charge of giving the annual inaugural oration. And uh, he was especially proud of one of those, uh, one called um, On the Method of Study of Our Time. And he revised that for publication in 1710, so uh, 15 years before he wrote The New Science. And uh, that's actually a great book to read for people who are new to Vico. Um, it's really his entry into the quarrel of ancients and moderns. Uh, he, he sort of draws up a balance sheet, uh, comparing the advantages and disadvantages of each in a way that, that I think is really fascinating. 
Uh, and then a year later, he decided that he would become a proper author, as it were, and he was going to write a trilogy. And so the first book was going to be on metaphysics, the second physics, and the third on ethics. Um, sadly, we only have the first member of the trilogy, uh, the uh, metaphysical book, or, or what the, the full title of which would be um, On the Most Ancient Wisdom of the Italians, Drawn Out from the Origins of the Latin Language. And I'm happy to say that Jason, uh, my collaborator, has actually translated that work uh, from Latin into English. And the, the reason I mention this work as part of the Who's Who entry is that Vico is known for what sometimes people call the verum factum principle. Uh, mm -hmm. Verum meaning true, and the factum meaning something that's been made. And the idea that there's some intimate uh, connection or relationship between truth and making. And uh, this is one of the principles that, that he will apply later to the new science. Um, part of the reason that uh, human history is intelligible or knowable to us um, has to do with the fact that um, it has been made by us and we, we can know um, what we've made. And so um, just, just one more point on the who's who answer, um, and then I'm sure Jason might want to chime in. Uh, he, um, before he wrote the new science, um, he decided that he wasn't getting paid quite enough as a professor of rhetoric. Um, yeah, academics did think about salaries uh, even back then. Um, he decided that he wanted to, to compete for a chair in a jurisprudence, a chair that would pay him about six times as much as the uh, chair in rhetoric. And so, so he wrote a massive work in a bid for that chair. Um, it's a work, he wrote it in Italian, uh, but I mean, I'm sorry, he, he wrote it in Latin, uh, which was the language of the learned, of course, but he gave it an Italian title, the Diritto Universale. It's kind of a hodgepodge of theology, philosophy, and legal history. And uh, I have to say that academic politics were about as bad then as they were now. And so he probably need, need, need not have bothered. He didn't get the job. He was probably doomed from the start. Okay, I say doomed. He might have been providentially destined to be a professor of rhetoric for the rest of his life. So even though he was ill-paid, he had a lot more time on his hands. And so he was able then to do the thinking that led to the new science. Um, Jason, I, I know you enjoy thinking about... Uh, Vico's role as a professor of rhetoric. Um, did, did you want to comment on that? I, I should yeah. I should ask before Jason gets, uh, goes on with that. What actually is a professor of rhetoric? Could you explain that, to Jason Taylor? Professor of rhetoric. So, so his primary duties are essentially to uh, to provide instruction around the entry point into the or at least one of the traditional entry points into the curriculum. His field of specialization, if we were to put it in sort of somewhat anachronistic terms, is jurisprudence. And as Rob was mentioning, um, it was his ambition um, for a number of reasons, not the least of which would have been financial, um, to secure a chair in juris jurisprudence. So in a certain kind of way, he was, he was um, how, what's the expression in boxing, punching punching below his weight, so to speak, huh. uh, as, the, as, the, as the professor of rhetoric in, in the institution. But uh, it's, it's, well, I don't, I mean, he certainly regarded it in his own self-account as providential that, that he, he was there. And one of the reasons might, might, you might sort of more speculatively think about in terms of um, the focus of today's uh, podcast, The New Science, is that it, it gave Vico, um, within his professional responsibilities, uh, consistent occasion to think about the relationship between um, what you might call the content of one's thinking um, and it, its presentation or its style. That is to say, he, he had a kind of primary focus on training, training students to countenance eloquence as, as a serious area of study. Um, and that, I think we see the marks of that actually um, at a very, uh, in a principled and substantive way 
in the new science and frankly in all of his works actually i don't know if that's a mm-hmm. that's a, a direct that's, answer to your question but that's that, that's, that's, that's how helpful. I look at it. Um, I, I noticed that uh, both of you guys have told me um, what he did, um, uh, his, pro- his his professional role, uh, his his works. You've told me nothing actually about the man himself. Was he was he married? Was he single? Did he have a large family? Did he were others dependent upon him? How much money did he make? Um, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I just want to note that. But what before you hopefully can tell me answer some of those questions. Yeah. I don't know exactly how much money he made, but I know it wasn't a lot and that he had to support a wife who almost certainly was illiterate and huh. he did have multiple children. Huh. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are stories about Vico sort of writing uh, his works amidst the, the cries and uh, screams of uh, small children. So um, this, so is yeah, not, this is not an elevated ivory tower existence. I, no. I, Certainly not. Yeah, I think, I mean, if I were to add to the who's who, and um, we could recommend to your listeners, or at least I would, as a, as a, as a additional recommendation, Rob had said as an entry point into Vico's thought, the Ratio Studiorum text, the, the text that he, mm-hmm. that he publishes early on about the sort of entering into the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, and really thinking about the differences between the approach uh, to education and uh, contemporary to his own time and, and that of the ancients. Another text to, to recommend as an entry point is, is what is commonly called or translated in English as his autobiography. It's the Vita. Um, and uh, for those who, who want to have a sort of fuller sense of the, of the details of his life, that's an extraordinary text um, uh, to engage with. And one of, the, one of the things that comes out very clearly, I think perhaps we um, in philosophy now, um, and perhaps others too, who look at philosophers are, have accustomed ourselves um, to imagining that that uh, philosophers inhabit um, universities, and if cer- certainly uh, Vico, in a certain kind of way, is a philosopher, even as a professor of rhetoric, and um, inhabits a university. But um, the Vita helps helps one see how you know prior to say Kant, where that becomes maybe normalized, um, a, a great philosopher or or, or um, sort of somebody on the all times greatest hits is not necessarily a resident of the university, and so you see um, someone. You know, I think Rob and I would agree with this. Arguably, of the stature, intellectual stature, though his reception doesn't necessarily bear, bear this out. Of say a Descartes, um, working <laughs> uh, at, not as an adjunct in the university, but certainly on a term contract, um, and um, formulating formulating his um, thinking over and against the sort of real material limitations of of what it is that he's doing, and not necessarily recognizing those as liabilities, but actually. Um, under the aspect of providence that 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 Rob was mentioning, sort of thinking about his own life precisely in the terms that we see formulated in other works, for example, the new science. I'll give you one quick example. Um, the 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 new science is really when we think about whether what the what the specific method of that is, whether it's historical or philosophical, um, it clearly is both. And we see that reflected in his account of his own life, which he claims at the very beginning to have written as both as an historian and as a philosopher. So you, you see him sort of writing his own life um, according to the dictates of this very um, peculiar method that he uses to investigate um, the human things, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, you're touching on this, but Jason, but what was, this is all part of then a sort of a, a project. I mean, this is a, this is a highly ambitious, um, to put it mildly project. Yes. 
Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, um, but in a certain kind of way, the project manifests itself in very, at least from Vico's perspective, very traditional terms. Um, mm -hmm. um, I would say I, I, I don't know how idiosyncratic this would be over and against uh, assessments of Vico's work and his, his larger project, but I, I, I take it that he sees himself largely as undertaking uh, the uh, fairly traditional tasks of political philosophy, understood hmm. really in two ways. So political philosophy can can be understood certainly in, in, in terms of philosophy and, and its uh, investigative apparatus being turned, turning its attention on the political things um, rather than, say, metaphysics or or physics or something like that. So political philosophy is, is one in which the subject area is the question of the best regime or how we ought to live together as human beings. Um, but political philosophy has also traditionally been understood as taking up the question of uh, what happens when philosophy becomes political. And by that, I mean simply when it, what happens when, um, as we see in the case of Socrates, philosophy has to countenance its own relation to the city. The, hmm. the, the question of what philosophy status is over and against political life is taken up. Um, and so those, both of those things, both an investigation of the political things, but then also a tr an attempt to understand philosophy in relation to the communities of which philosophies are a part and what the status of philosophy is, are, I would say, the contours of his larger project. Um, and then within that, um, sort of the devil is in the details, like what I, I, I take it that Vico, in his own self-regard, imagined himself as offering as the title of the book suggests, a new approach to that uh, mm -hmm. traditional project, uh, uh, um, in some ways a spectacularly uh, novel kind of undertaking, which um, um, attempts to to answer answer the uh, sort of those vital questions of of what is the best regime and what is the relationship of philosophy to politics in a new way. Rob, do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, just returning to the topic of the um, autobiography, or as Jason said, you had to. Uh, it's a longer title is the life of John Battista Vico written by himself. I mean, he, he actually uses the third person, not only in the title, but in the entire text. I mean, he, so he, it's, it's as if he were deliberately uh, wanting to uh, provide a counterpoint to uh, Descartes' uh, discourse on method. Right? Instead of privileging the first person perspective, he privileges the third person. You know, what, what is it that is, uh, you know, caused uh, me to develop in the particular way that I have? Uh, what, what are the particular um, forces and uh, perhaps even uh, laws or uh, providential operation that, that have uh, uh, contributed to, to my own development? I mean, that, that's at least one way of uh, putting the, the question that he's asking and, in, in the um, autobiography. And so, yeah, I, mean, I would concur with what Jason said about uh, the, the um, autobiography being sort of the application of the genetic method of the new science to his own life. And uh, between um, the autobiography and then the uh, um, the, the um, Rochester Studiorum work, you, you can really get a pretty rich idea of Vico even before you pick up the new science. And, and in some ways, I would actually recommend that procedure. Uh, there are many, many people who have, you know, gotten into the weeds of the new science and they give up <laughs> rather early on because it's not at all clear what he's doing um, early in the mm -hmm. new science. I, I can I can testify to that. So I don't want to uh, to, to impute uh, the, the to Naples the idea that it was an intellectual backwater in 1715 or thereabouts. But was it an intellectual backwater in the 1715? I mean, was he sort of at the end of the earth uh, for European ideas? Hmm. I, I mean, what, what was his intellectual community? 
Yeah. Well, that's a another really um, that that serves as an important recommendation for the for for the autobiography because he he takes up with the, that that question um, in a fairly fairly disciplined manner. He mm. he sort of imagines as he applies this genetic method um, to his own life. Um, I would say if you were to sort of generally characterize the the movement of his account of his life, it is the first sort of half of that is a kind of philosophical ascent, very understood in very traditional terms, which itself involves, if you were to think about, say, Plato's allegory of the cave, uh, a withdrawal from the political community of which he's a part. And the second half of that um, that account of his life is a, dis- a descent, which involves a kind of reintegration of himself into the um, larger political community of Naples, but then also um, the intellectual community. Uh, the, the last thing I think that the impression that you would get, even just from a just a kind of superficial impression of reading the book, is that Naples was a backwater. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it was a. I mean, there are other people who are experts in Vicos who would be able to speak to this in, in far more detail than I would be able to. Uh, but but um, Naples was, my impression is that Naples was a fairly exciting place to be at the beginning hmm. of the 18th century. Um, and you see um, in the eclectic nature of Vico's thought, um, occasionally without imputing anything on him, the sort of occasionally... Um, intellectually risky and you know, or theologically hazardous sort of uh, sort of tenor of his thinking that that he was he's exposed and exposed himself to a, a, a very wide range of of um, intellectual interlocutors both not just in his reading contemporary and past but then also in terms of the of the sort of um, academic societies we might say that were that were current in Naples and while he regards himself as largely uh, an autodidact in a certain kind of way, uh, self-taught, uh-huh. and he also imagines his relationship to that intellectual context as one of um, not just uh, 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 familiarity and belonging, but also alienation and withdrawal in a certain kind of way. Um, I don't, I don't see him as either sort of disconnected from that or uh, stagnating as a result of uh, lacking, uh, lacking occasions for, for sort of um, engaging himself. I don't know. What, so, would you add to that, Rob? Or go ahead. I'm sorry, Al. Uh, no, go ahead, Rob. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I think the only thing I would add to that is uh, it's somewhat difficult to interpret the autobiography uh, with respect to this question, because even though he does mention a lot of names uh, and thereby suggesting that he's part of a, a context that involves other people, he also tells the story in a way that tends to emphasize his, um, uh, his uh, relative isolation and so it does make one wonder, is Vico sort of giving an alternative version of, of the kind of myth of solitary genius that uh, Descartes certainly liked to give? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a lot of scholarship on Descartes, which shows that, in fact, uh, he did not really give birth to himself. <laughs> he, he was uh, taught, His teachers were far more important to him, uh, both methodologically and substantively, than um, his account would uh, necessarily let on. And it's interesting to consider the possibility as to whether or not something is... Uh, analogously true about Vico. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he does tend to play up the um, isolation aspect to, to a degree, but he, he also says that he's going to be more honest, more candid than Descartes was, and uh, tell you something about the uh, role of his teachers in education. So uh, how to so balance those things is a challenge that confronts the reader. Before we get back to uh, Descartes, uh, briefly, who were then his philosophical allies? Um, 
Yeah. Well, so uh, uh, I would say that that um, that Vico regards uh, um, re regards his greatest allies as as people who are not necessarily living. So across <laughs> I, I, across the. Um, I would I would I would um, claim that there's a, a certain kind of development to Vico's thinking, and at the same from from the beginning of the 18th century on up into the New Science, um, in 1744, its final publication, and and yet across that development, there's a certain kind of consistency. It seems to me it's almost as if uh, Vico is one of these kinds of thinkers who who um, crystallized pretty early on in his intellectual life a sense of what his project might be, and then went through successive formulations of that project which were more and more adequate to 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 express the the character and the scope of the project and so one of the areas of consistency is really looking across his written work at um, the a group of people he calls the politici um, the political sages or maybe the political philosophers who he says whose prince he says is Plato and um, by the politici or the political sages, he means uh, a group of uh, a group of um, philosophers from the history of political philosophy, whose work ultimately was in dynamic and productive relationship to um, political life. That is to say, um, that they were not um, well. In the new science, he characterizes uh, the politici as sort of. And, and in antagonism with a group of philosophers he calls the solitary or monastic philosophers. And by contrast, these are a group, um, they're, not, they're not homogeneous, they're, they're a certain sort of sexed within this kind of broad category, but solitary philosophers are ones who have, um, whose commitment to philosophical inquiry has either made them demand too much of political life, and so they are, in a certain sense, useless to political life, or who's who have altogether, say, like the Epicureans, withdrawn from engagement with political life altogether, um, and so are, are are of no benefit to the city whatsoever. Um, so, I mean, his allies are are uh, figures from the history of philosophy um, who he regards as political philosophers, uh, understood in the terms I was describing, and even that itself. Um, is a term that he takes from from Cicero in Cicero's De Oratore. Cicero himself, in telling the history of philosophy up until his own reception of it, um, sort of regards his his project, Cicero's project, as an, in terms of finding a kind of um, synthesis of eloquence and wisdom as benefiting from those figures from the history of philosophy, whose prince, in his case, is Socrates, um, who have uh, have brought philosophy into the service of the city rather than um, standing apart from it. Oh, okay, so if those are some of his allies, Plato, Socrates, etc., um, then who are his antagonists? Well, before we talk about the antagonists, sure. uh, can I just mention um, one other uh, way to frame the question of his allies? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but, but this too um, it comes from the autobiography. Uh, Vico singles out a group of people that he calls his four authors. And uh, now he doesn't say the four allies, but, but uh, he does say four authors. And uh, each of these are authors that he somehow regards as exemplary or containing at least a part of uh, something that he wants to integrate into his own project. And so, so the four authors are Plato. And I don't think that's a coincidence that he's the first of the four um, as the prince of the politici, as Jason said. But then you have, in addition to Plato, Tacitus, Bacon, and Grotius. 
<laughs> and uh, it, it's very interesting to see exactly um, what he says about each author in the autobiography. And then you can take that and uh, apply it um, to the new science. Okay. So uh, well, I mentioned Descartes before, and obviously Descartes is, am I, am I right in saying that as for Pascal, Descartes is for Vico the number one antagonist? Certainly, if you were to read everything that he, he wrote up until 1725, so sort of the early stuff, uh, uh -huh. Descartes would seem to be um, his, a thorn in his side that he never tired of sort of like... Um, um, Scratching it. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, strangely, in the new science, um, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Rob, uh, Descartes is, is most noticeable by his absence. I mean, he's, it's not as though he's, he's vanished, but um, whatever it is that was bugging Vico about Descartes has, has um, sort of uh, become submerged in a certain kind of way relative to the, to the concerns of the new science. So it is true, for example, that, that, that Vico early on in his early works regards um, Descartes as, as um, a kind of primary example of... Um, somebody who's antithetical to this, um, the project of the Politici, the political philosophers. And he's representative of a certain kind of, as Vico characterizes him, um, neo-Stoicism. And the way he, I think he understands Stoicism relative to the, the project of political philosophy, as he understands it, is that there's a certain kind of, um, how do you put it, uh, a commitment amongst the, the neo-Stoics they're almost as if they're, they, they're, there's a quality of idealism, um, is how I would put it. They're idealists um, who's, um, who are very good on questions of how ought things to be, but fail to, to pay sufficient attention to how things actually are. And the primary register in which Th Vico anthropologically thinks about how things are is in terms of what he calls um, human imbecility, which you could think about as... Um, uh, he certainly understands it under the aspect of original sin, but there's a certain kind of vulnerability, uh, a, a wide-ranging kind of vulnerability, which is endemic to the human condition. And uh, Vico's primary sort of um, concern uh, among, uh, toward, towards people like Descartes and these um, these zealots, uh, idealists, is that they that they um, try to extirpate our nature. Um, it, over and against their their de demands, moral and intellectual, that they make upon that human nature, and so one of the projects of um, the new science is to is certainly not to abandon human beings to their corruption, but um, but to be very attentive um, to the to the limits of the of you might say the human material in terms of what what might be done to remedy um, their state or condition. What other, are some other antagonists if in the new science? Hmm. Wanna, should I keep going, Rob, or would you like to, to pick up? Or? Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on uh, that thread. Uh, the, the authors that he takes as exemplary in some way or another in the autobiography are uh, Plato, Tacitus, um, Bacon, and uh, um, Grotius. Uh, he's very, very complimentary to Grotius and the autobiography. But uh, I would say much less so the new science. Uh, he mentions Grotius usually as part of a trio. The other members are uh, Selden and uh, Pufendorf, and, and he calls them the, the princes of the natural law. 
Hmm. Now, that, that might seem to be a compliment, but uh, I think Vika is uh, being uh, characteristically ironic um, here. Uh, he his uh, issue with the approach that he takes to be common to the three princes of the natural law is that they don't proceed um, historically, that they, they uh, take a rather um, abstract uh, formulation of natural law, and then they read that back into uh, human history and thereby embody uh, the syndrome that Biko calls the vanity of the learned. And um, I think that's a pretty important critique. Uh, I mean, it's not that Vico doesn't think there is something to be discovered that would be appropriately uh, be called natural law, but, but it can't simply be the kind of uh, sort of theoretically precise um, conceptual formulation that we might have access to today read back into earlier humanity. And so uh, I, I would say that, um, yeah, that that's certainly uh, one um, of the uh, villains, as it were, of the, mm-hmm. of the new science. Just to break away from Vico a little bit, um, you have a very nice, uh, on the early in your in your introduction, you have a principles of translation uh, that you lay out. Uh, how difficult is it to translate uh, Vico? Uh, what are some of the uh, particular challenges? I mean, there, uh, what, what are some of the challenges of any translation in your experience? Since, um, Jason, you've this is the second time you've translated Vico. Is that correct? Or that is, that you, is correct. Yeah. So, so you, so you've you've got you understand now the challenges of not just of translation in general, but also of of translating Vico in particular. So, what are some of the, what were some of the challenges in translating him? Well, the, certainly, challenge one of the challenges in translating him the second time is that that. Um, the new science is maybe 20 or 30 times longer than on the most ancient wisdom of the Italians. Um, so it, it's a, it's a, just a much bigger meal. Um, but I would say sort of in general, and I think other people who have, who have taken translation seriously, um, you're, you're, when, when you do translating is really about carrying something over and, and for, for whatever reason, you're not going to be able to carry over everything. Um, uh, some things are more difficult than others to sort of bring across from from one language to another. But you're you're necessarily confronted with um, it's almost as though you're you're sort of packing luggage and you're re- really going to have to pare down and decide what is the most important sort of uh, um, set of elements that I'm I'm going to try to bring over here in this particular case. So there's there's that um, just the the decision making process um, uh, around a limited ambition what what you can and cannot do relative mm-hmm. to the original. I would say with respect to the, to the new science, this is not meant to be a, 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 a glib answer, but one of the principal difficulties is that it's, um, we've tried, I think, in our translation to provide a very, fairly sharp, if I could use this metaphor, a fairly sharply focused uh, picture of what it is that, that, that we're representing um, in the original. Unfortunately, the, the original is, is, is sort of a fuzzy object. So you, you, we, we, what we've done is I th- if we have been successful, is is rendered um, a, a fairly clear, what we hope, image of a, a fuzzy original that it's not mm-hmm. it's, it's not entirely in sharp focus, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that um, I suppose uh, for those who, who are not able to compare it against the original, might <laughs> they might be inclined to think that that maybe the camera is out of focus or something like that. Um, so there's that um, the. The in terms of what what we it has been difficult, but also a sort of a joy. I think one of the important things to note about the new science is that, and we do talk a little bit about this in the in the introduction, is that the 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 sort of fundamental unit of intelligibility is something like a rhetorical cola 
which is which itself is 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 very different and oftentimes usually much longer than an English sentence. So so we're we're accustomed to thinking about sentences as having a certain kind of um, unity to them and a certain kind of tolerable length. And the rhetorical cola that that Vico's using and marking off with a period in the sort of standard punctuation are considerably more usually not always but usually considerably more. Um, uh, expansive, and then also, on, on the whole, highly more structured than we're accustomed, I think, in contemporary English to, to, um, to sort of um, tolerate, if if that's the right way of putting it. And so, I mean, one of our one of our goals in this translation was to is to bring that structure, syn- syntactic kind of structure, across in the translation, in spite of its somewhat. It's a little bit foreign, I think, to our contemporary sensibilities, and also to make sure that we're tracking as closely as the English allows the variation in the structure. And so it it is hard in the sense that you really do have to wrestle with a a range of problems around just how how much can English bear in terms of sort of what what you're going to mark off. Um, Whether we've been successful or not with that. I, I don't know. We'll see how, how the book is received. The last thing that I would say in terms of the new science and in particular challenges, it, it's probably in my acquaintance with the history of uh, ideas and certainly philosophy, probably the most self-referential book that um, I've ever encountered. He points <laughs> forward, he points backwards, um, and we've, we've taken great care to try to make render that legible to the reader. But in just in terms of uh, and luckily, computers have sort of made some of the mechanical work around this a little bit more. Uh, you don't have to have all of this in your memory. But, you know, when, when Vico mentions um, uh, a passage from Livy about um, the institution of the asylum, for example, which he does probably, I don't know, I'm guessing 20 times, um, and repeats himself almost word for word, it's, it's probably a good idea to make sure that the translation is rendered exactly the same across all of those instances. And so the sort of highly repetitive and self-referential character of the, of the work really asks for a, a level of consistency from the translators um, in order to sort of faithfully bring across that, that particular distinctive aspect of this work. And as I understand it from your intro, the, um, the 1744 edition had a, it has a very unusual typography. Um, he also, he has these axioms and corollaries. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, he yeah. has things in capital letters. He has, uh, he, uh, to, he's, he's yelling all the time, like, uh, an <laughs> elderly person using all caps on their, on their computer. Yes. Um, it, so, but you, you've, you've preserved that. Yeah. I mean, you have to preserve that as an editor, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't, it's, it's hard to, it, to get, get, to render all that. It is for sure. Yeah, and there. Are, I mean, we've. I mean, one one example of of something that we have not brought in across, brought across, but regrettably is um, there's a fair amount of italicizing as well. But I think if we were to have capitalizing and italicizing and exclamation points and axioms and corollaries, um, it may be. I mean, we what we what we've most hoped is to is to convey the strangeness of the work. It is a very strange work. Um, mm-hmm. But but we don't also want to traumatize uh, the contemporary reader either. <laughs> well, we might do that anyway. But <laughs> yeah. um, well, so one of the first things that the uh, reader finds in your edition of Vico is that on page 
two, there is a, a frontispiece. And of course, anyone who's had to study Leviathan will remember the frontispiece in Leviathan, which is full of meaning. And, uh, and likewise, the New Science has a frontispiece, which is also full of meaning. But it's so full of meaning that Vico goes from page 5 to 33 of your edition explaining it. <laughs> <laughs> and so this, so if you're wondering, so what's all this, what's all this, this chap on about? Um, what are people talking about? Immediately you realize this is a strange book <laughs> just from that. Or this is a, a curious author. So I, I, we don't have time to unpack all those pages, um, but why does he do this? I, I don't know if we should explain what the front piece looks like. If we can do that in shorter than 33 pages, that would be good. Yeah. What we really need is an electronic version of the front piece. So we're we just click on various I'll, parts of it and then you yeah, have the explanation to come up. I would like to. I wish I could do. Wish we had a, a production budget to put that up on our website. <laughs> right, but um, you know that there's a really um sort of seemingly uninteresting but mundane answer to the question mm -hmm. uh, that the printer had some uh, blank pages that he needed to fill. Uh, I, I'm not sufficiently an expert in the material culture to give account. Are you serious? Is that the actual reason? Yes, yes, yes. So that there were pages that needed to be filled, and so uh, the printer approached Vico and asked, "Well, is there anything you might do to fill up these pages?" And uh, this is one of those events that, that Vico will often refer to as an occasion or mm -hmm. an opportunity. It's a term that he's, he's sort of he's using a vocabulary that uh, comes from, uh, well, really, I think both uh, Machiavelli and then also uh, uh, Malabranche. Mm -hmm. that, that, that there's an occasion that um, will be presented to him. Uh, he wasn't anticipating it at all, but then he'll see a chance to do something with it in a way that leads to some greater good that would not have been um, easily predictable. I mean, this is one of the ways that providence operates, mm -hmm. according to Vico, taking chances or occasions and leading people to act in ways that uh, produce a greater good than anything they had consciously intended. And so mm -hmm. I think Vico saw an opportunity in the sense to um, uh, fill these pages, but in a way that would uh, both introduce um, his work uh, to the first time reader and then would also uh, somehow train the memory. Mm -hmm. and uh, develop the mind in, uh, in a certain manner that uh, I think is a part of the older um, art of memory. Um, and so that's what he does. Now, uh, how, how well the um, uh, uh, explication of the uh, frontispiece works as an introduction is an open question. Uh, it, it does go on a bit. But um, I, I think uh, I mean, if you're looking for an account of the um, basic structure, of the new science, you, you could do much worse than flip to the very end of uh, the explication of the frontispiece, where mm -hmm. he'll actually lay out uh, uh, the, the ordering uh, that goes from you know book one through books two and three, um, centering in the discovery of the true Homer, and then um, culminating with, with a corso and the recorso in a book uh, books four and five. So. Yeah, is there anything you want to add to that, Jason? Huh? I would. I, I mean, yes. Uh, I guess so. I mean, there's. In terms of what, what greater good comes out of uh, sort of seizing this occasion, uh, I think there's a kind of interaction between the operation of visually. So if you're looking just to, for a brief description of the, of the frontispiece not going on, but there, it is very, it's sort of fetching and, and intriguing. You have up in the upper left-hand corner um, a kind of triangular eye of providence that looks like it's from the back of a dollar bill shooting a laser beam across to the right-hand side of the of the upper register bouncing off of the sort of breastplate of um, what looks to be some kind of a divine figure, a woman, um, lady philosophy or something poised on, 
metaphysics, exactly, yeah, as we find out. Is using, yeah. it, exactly. It's sort of poised on a globe, and the, the laser beam bounces off of um, her armor and, and strikes a statue of Homer that's sort of resting on a broken uh, pedestal with an array of all sorts of emblems um, uh, underneath of it. And so you sort of immediately look at it and sort of wonder what, what in the world is going on. Um, but the, your, your, let's say visual apparatus is able to, of course, you're not taking in the entire thing as a single intuition, but you're able to sort of, um, grasp if I can put it that way, um, <laughs> what, what's being presented to you, um, in a way that's different from the explication, which itself discursively then begins to not only sort of under unpack, each of the elements individually, but is a bit of a guided tour as to how visually you might um, take in um, the, the what is a very, very complicated sort of representation. And so if you sort of follow the logic, if I can put it that way, of the explication, it, it helps train um, a, a mental sort of grasp, which um, is able to sort of hold in, in suspension, multiple elements sort of train that, that, um, that mental gaze to also then begin to articulate um, the various elements and to understand them in relation to one another. Um, yeah. That, and, and we should say there's, there is really, I, I don't think there's any element of this. It's not that complex a drawing, but there's not a single element about which Vico does not discourse at some length. Uh, no, the fact that the, the globe, for example, there's a globe is balancing upon the corner of an altar that has that is full of meaning. Yes. And he goes on to tell you all of that meaning. Yes. Um, it, it may so, seem just a really quick yeah. final edition. Just I mean, it may seem a little glib, but but if we didn't, it's not represented in our edition. But if you look at the 1744 edition, that frontispiece um, sits next to. Uh, another sort of representation, which itself is just a a, a kind of um, a, a, a illustration of a, what looks like a, a head bust statue of Vico himself, and he looks, by I might say, very severe. Actually, uh, looks a little intimidating. Um, but underneath the caption that uh, for that for that part of the frontispiece is something I'm paraphrasing here. Something like, "Here is Vico." Um, the the painter or the illustrator was able to represent or capture his face or his countenance, if only he was able to capture his ingenium, his genius or his native wit. Um, mm. And so you, you may, again, it may seem a little fanciful, you might sort of move from that, that representation over to the right-hand side of the page and look at what is plausibly a kind of attempt to offer some kind of representation of the, the peculiar genius that sort of underlies the, the the work as well. So it's it may be that it's partly revelatory of the of the author himself, who's but sort of behind this work as a kind of initial foray hmm. into the into the new science. Okay, very nice. Um, it, this uh, leads to the next sort of set of questions. There's a, a sort of we already discussed his odd sort of style. Um, it is at first uh, taste, it seems pseudoscientific. Um, to this, to a cynical modern person like myself, um, it's uh, clunky. It's convoluted. Uh, often, as I said, there's there are flashes of like lightning, but often it's uh, clunky and convoluted. Uh, there are principles, there are corollaries and axioms. Uh, but after a while, you realize this guy is uh, first of all, he's a lot smarter than I am. Uh, he's really, really smart. Uh, so there must be a method here. There's a what, there's something going on. So what is he doing? Because this is he's he's doing this on purpose. Why? 
Hmm. Yes, that's a big question. Uh, yeah. One way to approach it is to say that uh, uh, there's got to be some kind of connection between uh, the style that Vico adopts and the nature of the project itself. Uh, yeah. Vico is um, wanting to investigate the entirety of what he calls the civil world. And so if we're going to have a science of the civil world, it's going to have to uh, take on a, a great deal of material. And so there's, there's something, there's a correspondence between the sprawling Baroque nature of the style and the sheer vastness of the subject matter itself. So I, I guess I, I would try to aim for an account which would um, explain the style as a function of the uh, subject matter of the science. Uh, one might say that, yeah, that the, the style is as chaotic and as, well, I don't want to say before, I mean, I mean it, it, it seems um, somewhat uh, disorganized uh, on a first reading, but uh, I actually do think that it's more tightly structured um, than one might initially think. But, but, but he definitely makes you um, earn your way to that perception. Yes. I mean, you, you really have to, uh, I mean, I think Vika wanted uh, his readers to engage his work uh, multiple times. I, I think he actually says in uh, one of the axioms that didn't make the final edition that, that, that the perfect reader would, would read the book three times. Hmm. And so presumably um, the, the third time you would actually um, glimpse uh, the interconnections between things that appear disparate or scattered. And that, that's actually one way that Vika describes the, uh, the, the, fa- the power of uh, ingenium, uh, the ingenuity that uh, Jason mentioned. It, it's precisely the power of connecting things that initially strike one as um, disconnected. So I, I would say in, in some way his style is uh, a potential aid to developing the, the reader's uh, ingenium, uh, his or her capacity to uh, connect uh, things that uh, initially seem um, not connected. <laughs> That's a that's a great answer. I mean, I, I'm not <laughs> sure if I would be able to, to add much more except to just underline that I really do think that the style follows the science. It's a new science. And so the the um, the the method that he he deploys is is intended to be uh, a kind of reflection of the of the both the and, subject matter and the strangeness of the approach to that subject matter. And that's the reason then for principles, corollaries, or axioms? Does he mean Does he mean for people to memorize those? I mean, does he mean to that we are to apprehend these and, and, and carry them with us, as it were, as we march forward through the text? Yeah. Um, well, that they're to, uh, they, they, they unspool in a logical fashion as we march, go along? I'm going to let Rob answer most of that, but I'll, I'll say just to just I'll tack because I think I've learned a lot from listening to Rob talk about this particular issue. But um, I would say rather than unspooling, I think the the image that that he provides is that the, at least initially in the laying out of these principles and corollaries and axioms towards the beginning of the work is to is to lay out a set of materials um, that he he claims um, circulate almost like blood uh, through through a system, and so. Uh, what you see is is a kind of um, analytically abstract kind of um, laying out of discrete elements, uh, which have a certain kind of logic and connection to them. But then as you go through the work, at getting back to the highly self-referential um, style, um, 
of the work and in the ways that it cross-references itself. Um, it's, it, it's a worthy project for anybody who wants to make a careful study of this to sort of try to note, for example, the way in which a particular axiom, let's say axiom 12, circulates through the work and the way that it manifests itself in all sorts of contexts from the beginning to the end. Um, so, so I think the, the initial laying out um, has the purpose of sort of like arraying a set of materials that, that then are deployed um, systematically, if that's the right word, um, throughout the rest of the work. So let me let me let me press on. I want to we, we need to press on, and I want to ask this sure. sort of the sixty four dollar question: Is what is his method? Um, if we have to summarize Vico's method, what is it? Um, I, I'm curious as a historian: Is this a historical method? I mean, as is it? What sort of method is it? But I know that he has one, and that he. Uh, but I'm I'm a little too dim to understand it. I, I've only tried to read this once. I haven't gotten the th through it three times. So what is that? Well, okay, I would act, I would actually answer uh, that by uh, suggesting that it's not clear that he operates with a single method. Okay. The, the, the idea that he think will have one method and one method only really is uh, a legacy of the Cartesian inheritance. Uh -huh. right? the, the idea that you know, you'll have a method that can be applied universally to any subject matter. I, I'm actually quite tempted by the thought that Vika will um, use a variety of methods, so depending on the context and, and depending on the particular question that he's investigating. Now, I know that might sound like a cop-out, but I actually no, it's think it's one way actually. that might be uh, distinct from uh, Descartes. He, he yeah. doesn't necessarily subscribe to a single method, although he does have a um, section in book one that's called method. Yeah. So I mean, one way to answer that question would be to read that and say, okay, uh, what is he doing? Um, and is there anything that unifies uh, the diversity of approaches that he takes? Um, I, I think one of my favorite... Um, uh, passages from that section is where he uses an archaeological metaphor. He's mm -hmm. taking the uh, textual remains of antiquity that lie before us, scattered and broken, and then he's attempting to, to piece those together. Uh, now, exactly, you know, what, what are the criteria that he employs in judging uh, whether or not they've been pieced together correctly or not? Um, he, 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 has a, he has a lot to say about that, but, uh, but this idea that he's performing um, not to assimilate Vico to Foucault, but, but the idea that he's performing a kind of archaeology of knowledge and trying to go back to the distant past, um, gain access to the remains which have been covered over by uh, all the, the maladies that he calls the, the vanity of nations and the vanity of the learned, and then put it back together in a way that has a kind of coherence that um, other approaches haven't had. Um, I mean, one of the early... Um, productions of Vico or earlier that have since been lost was called the um, New Science in Negative Form. It, it was a kind of a, an elenctic attempt to, to show how other attempts to uh, talk about history would issue in contradiction and confusion and incoherence. And some of these things show up in what he calls the Museum of Imposture <laughs> in, in the New Science. And so yeah, one way of describing the method in general terms is to you know, think about it as a kind of archaeological mission of digging, uh, finding the pieces um, in their initially sort of um, grimy state, and then trying to put them together in a way that uh, um, sheds light on whatever the question at hand is. Okay, I, I like that. We'll we'll put a period at the end of that. That might it that might be the, the way of describing m the multiple methods that he uses. There's something analogous to that. So. He, you've mentioned providence several times. In fact, Vico himself says um, that, uh, therefore, this is uh, page 116 in your version, it's three, uh, 342. Um, 
Therefore, this science, in one of its principal aspects, must be a rational civil theology of divine providence, which seems to have been lacking up until now. Okay. Um, I underline that because that was obviously, that's a big claim. I'm surprised it wasn't in italics. Maybe it was. Um, uh, so it, uh, and given the number of times you've mentioned uh, providence and the number of times he mentions it, it seems that's actually a pretty important statement by Vico. Uh, what does it mean? What is a rational civil theology of divine providence? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start us off on that, and then um, I'm sure Rob will have more to say, too. So I think the way to parse that is to start at, with the central term, um, theology. So what is he doing? He's, he's um, finding a way of talking about who or what God is. So the, it's a, it has a kind of theological inflection. Um, under what aspect? Under uh, the aspect of divine providence. So I think you would understand that as all of us would in sort of traditional way. Um, who is God? Who? What is God? Um, and, or what can be revealed about God and understanding the nature of God, if that's the right way of putting it, um, mm. through the operation of divine providence. That is to say the manifestation of God's um, intelligence, power, um, goodness within the course of human affairs, or maybe we might even say human history. So in, in what sense is it a civil theology of, of divine providence? In what sense is it a rational theology of divine providence? It's civil in the sense that um, Vico takes, takes it that he's going to look for the manifestations of, of this divine providence in civil, in, in, in civil things, not in natural things. There would be any number of available natural theologies of divine providence, uh, which try to look at the natural world and to understand the sort of theological or metaphysical principles that would be undergirding the operation of that world. He's shifting his attention away from that kind of um, inquiry and focusing on on where it is that we see those that manifestation in the human things or the civil things. Um, in what sense is it rational? I would say that it we would have we could find. I think the point of contrast there, if the point of contrast with civil is natural, the point of contrast with rational is poetic. So you might look at something like Hesiod's Theogony as a kind of poetic civil theology of divine providence. There are any number of um, works, perhaps, from, the, from um, the literary tradition that he inherits that would give a kind of poetic account, but he's trying to specifically offer a rational account of the operation of divine providence within um, the context of civil affairs. That's how I would start to sort of unpack that uh, fairly mm -hmm. significant claim that he's making. Rob? Um, yeah, to that, I would just add that uh, the invocation of the category of providence uh, has given rise to uh, any number of competing interpretations of what Vico might mean by that. Is Vico talking about providence in a sense that is um, either identical or at least continuous with that of the traditional Catholic theology, where uh, providence is an aspect of God uh, that uh, decisively transcends uh, human history? and uh, the, the human as such, or um, is uh, talk about divine providence just a way of referring to forces that are situated squarely uh, within um, human history and don't uh, transcend the uh, created universe um, at all? And so uh, yeah, the, the difference between sort of the transcendent and the emanatizing interpretations of providence, I, I think, is significant. And uh, uh, so some people have seen Vico as... Um, in a way, uh, anticipating 
something like uh, Hegel, sorry, um, Hegel's Cunning of Reason or the, the Invisible Hand of uh, Adam Smith, you know, this idea that things will ultimately work out for the best uh, in a way that wasn't anticipated by the um, conscious intentions of people acting in history. But I, I don't think it's clear that um, we want to interpret Vico in that way. I mean, I, I think there's a case to be made for um, asserting the continuity between Vico's rational civil theology and uh, an older theology, which would uh, understand providence in a more traditional terms. But uh, it, how, how, where to come down ultimately in that debate is uh, quite tricky. And mm -hmm. I, I don't want to resolve it for anybody who might be listening to this. Well, let's press on. Um, book two is devoted to is on poetic wisdom. Um, it will get to some of the um, other aspects of wisdom. Poetic wisdom is ex extraordinarily important for Vico, as we're going to by the the end of the by book four. He's speaking about the true Homer. Uh, is it book four? Yeah, true Homer. Book, book, three. Um, sure book three is the true Homer. Um, yeah, sorry. So, what is what is poetic wisdom, and what's the importance of poetics? He is a professor of rhetoric, after all. But um, why? Uh, go ahead, Jason. I'll let you take that one. <laughs> okay. So, like the million, the million dollar question. So, I'm not going to get to the bottom of this, but I mean, you it, it, a good starting point might uh, be to imagine sort of. Um, the what what we would understand by poetics in the sort of normal sense of the term you were asking about the importance of poetics and then what what makes it sort of novel for Vico uh, mm -hmm. I mean poetics as a field of study would be sort of primarily focused on literary texts that were created by mm -hmm. authors and trying to come to a greater more disciplined understanding of the way in which that that text coheres and to a certain extent to sort of understand perhaps as, as one set of issues, sort of how it comes, comes, comes to be. So if you were to think about that um, in a more expansive way, that is to say, if you were to think about a, something, a, po a poem, not just being a sort of literary work, but to think of a poem as anything that is literally made, anything that, 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 that is created or, or is made, um, then the field, so Vico claims that he, he has invented or discovered a kind of new art of criticism um, several times throughout the text. And it's not entirely clear that that's meant to apply itself simply to um, literary products. That is to say, um, as you're reading through Vico, you, you come to see that, that, that the artifacts that he is decoding through his po poetics are um, oftentimes actually um, institutions. Say, I mean, big institutions or very general concepts like family or city or burial or something like that. Um, and so if you were to imagine that that would be a poem, I know it's a bit of a stretch, but if you were to imagine that that would be a poem that would be subject, subjectable to literary analysis, you begin to see something of the sort of scope of the ambition um, that Vico has, sort of has in this project. He claims um, that... That the labor of the new science, one of the principal labors that cost him 20 years of his life was to, to the discovery that the first Gentile people were poets who spoke in poetic characters. And hmm. by that, he doesn't literally mean that they spoke in sort of um, poetic words, that they actually, the authors, you, I mean, we, we, we have a common idiom of thinking about founding fathers or founders of a particular order or something like that. If you were to think about uh, about those people who created things as authors 
of those institutions, um, or even these broader concepts in which we think, um, then you begin to see that what he's what he's attempting to do um, in this work is is to provide an apparatus for understanding. Um, First of all, the sort of like the characteristics of those of those artifacts, but then also to understand the ways in which that they're genetic really, genetically related to one another. Uh, probably one of the most important instances of that in the new sciences is trying to understand the the emergence of civil or political life out of the institution of the family. So um, his his sort of poetic analysis, if mm. I which sounds strange, is attempting is attempting to sort of how do we say decode. Um, those artifacts in a certain kind of way and to understand their their historical relation to one another um, mm-hmm. as evolving over time. That's So there's a first pass at what is probably, of the of all the questions you've asked, asked so far, sort of the million, from my perspective, the million-dollar question. Like, so no, it's, I don't know, no it is. It's, it's a very powerful and, 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 and beautiful um, response. Uh, it's a very powerful and beautiful idea that he has. Um, could you, one of you gloss this section, this is section 368, uh, where he's an exposition and partitioning of poetic wisdom. And he writes, um, in such a manner, this science comes to be in one breath, a history of the ideas, customs, and deeds of humankind. And from all three histories, I guess there's of ideas of customs and deeds from all three histories will come the principles of the history of human nature. These being the principles of a universal history which seems to have been lacking in its own principles. Um, what is, could you explain that, please? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'll go ahead and take an initial crack at it, then I'll let yeah. Jason elaborate. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it might be best to focus on that phrase, uh, yeah, principles of the history of human nature. Yeah. Uh, principles uh, means uh, a range of things in Vico, but uh, one, one of the meanings that it takes is starting points. Uh, where, where does uh, the thing that we call human history actually have its uh, beginnings? Well, where does it start? But one of Vico's methodological axioms is uh, doctrines must uh, take their um, start from the matters that they treat. So um, where, where is it that uh, something identifiable as humanity uh, begins? What are the core starting points, uh, understanding principles in that sense? And his answer to that question is uh, some kind of religion, uh, some uh, form of coupling or marriage, and then uh, the practice of uh, burying the dead. So religion, marriage, and burial are the uh, three starting points or the three principles, at least in one sense of that somewhat ambiguous term, principles. And uh, the, the idea of uh, the history of human nature, I mean, that, that itself is a very suggestive phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, often people will use the um, phrase human nature as if it refers to a single, universal, unchanging thing. Right. And uh, Vico wants to make it very difficult to do that. Yes. Um, it, we can still use the language of human nature, but it's something that really does develop over time and takes on um, different uh, characteristics as it um, uh, evolves or, or devolves, as the case may be. But uh, there's, there's not necessarily a single static, unchanging entity called human nature, but, 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 uh, but it has a history. And I mean, this has become a somewhat um, conventional way of speaking now, but uh, certainly in the 18th century, um, it wasn't. And I mean, this is one of the many areas in which Vico would have been truly ahead of his time, just in having the idea that uh, human nature is, is the kind of thing that would have a history. Mm-hmm. And so um, that that's one... Um, yeah, so, so, so the, the uh, idea that um, a universal history would have been lacking its own principles, one, one way to take that would be that um, pe- people did not have a sufficiently developmental 
um, idea of human nature. Rather, they, they were tempted to take what they were familiar with and then impose that upon the unknown. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's something that comes up in the axioms. Uh, the whole Tacitus on their tendency to uh, explain the um, uh, unknown by the known. And uh, Vito is wanting to somehow overcome that tendency. It is, I mean, it's another uh, sort of, if nothing else in that passage, we see another instance of his really uh, stunning, um, his, his stunning ambition of, of this project. And yes. yeah, and and just just sort of um, stunning ambition, but also, I don't I don't know if your your listeners would sort of find this a helpful comparison. But if you if you think about the three principles, it, it's indicative of his method and and what what makes him distinctive. To to sort of focus for a moment on the three principles that Rob underlined: um, religion, marriage, and burial as these as these three principles which guide mm-hmm. the work. Um, by by religion. Um, Vico's primarily thinking about the idea of God, and by by marriage, he's primarily thinking about the idea of virtue, which he associates with freedom. And by burial, he's primarily thinking about the idea of the immortality of the soul. Um, so, I mean, anybody who, for example, is familiar in philosophical tradition, sort of God, freedom, and immortality are the sort of three big ideas that that Kant himself takes up. But what you notice in Vico is something not, not to, this is not to draw an invidious comparison, but something very different in terms of the the way that he takes up with these very abstract sort of big ideas: God, freedom, and immortality. Um, the way that Vico situates those in in terms of his own investigation is to is to sort of think of them as as how to, how, how to say institutionally housed. So we can't think about something like the immortality of the soul in abstraction from the custom of burial as, or more broadly, we might say, since not all cultures sort of bury the dead, some, they have their variety of ways, the, the ways in which um, care for the dead um, is a distinctively, a distinctively human kind of um, feature. And, and by looking at the, the, the characteristics of those particular and general customs, um, we are able to talk about something like, um, is the soul immortal or not? Or what does it mean for the soul to be immortal in a very different way than we might, we, we might otherwise be accustomed to talk about something like that. So book three, I mean, we've just, I've just skipped over most of the, of, of the new science when I moved from book two, where I was in book two to book three, but here we go. On we go. Um, book three is on the discovery of the true Homer. Um, <laughs> this is a time when anyone who's graduating from university anywhere has to read Homer, uh, has to read the Greek. And yet here is Vico claiming that he has found the true Homer. Uh, so that's cheeky. Uh, <laughs> but I, I also take it that Homer is important to Vico for reasons uh, that both of you have said, that Homer is the poet and that he has created this matrix of poetic ideas from which uh, Gentile civilization, uh, would, that be, would that be what Vico would call it, is being birthed? Is that, yes. is that right? Yeah, I, I think the best way into that is to um, yeah, really emphasize the point that for Vico, Homer is a poet in the proper sense of the term. He, he's, not a, he's not a philosopher disguising himself as a poet, mm-hmm. but he's actually a poet who is working with uh, particular concrete images and doesn't actually have access to uh, abstractions and purely rational concepts. So, I mean, Homer belongs to an earlier age than the um, age of humans with their uh, conceptual repertoire. He's a a poet who doesn't have access to uh, what we think of as philosophy or or, or what Vico will call um, recondite wisdom. Yeah, so um, 
the, the, the false Homer, as it were, it would be the, the picture of Homer as somebody who has these lofty, noble, sophisticated ideas, but he wants to illustrate them and make them vivid by translating them into poetry. But for, for Vico, that's exactly the wrong way to think about Homer. He's not a philosopher. Mm. He doesn't have abstract ideas that he makes poetic. Rather, he's sort of, he's primordially operating within the register of the poetic, the, the mythical, the customary, the, 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 the close to home. And uh, so if we um, disabuse ourselves of the idea that Homer was a philosopher sort of writing poetry, but is actually a primordial poet, we're, we're going to see him revealing things about um, an earlier way of life that are completely missed by people who, you know, read, say, book one of the um, Iliad and think, ah, okay, Homer's trying to give us wisdom about how to deal with uh, the emotion of anger. And Achilles, you know, might not be such a good example of how to handle anger. And uh, Homer's trying to show this to us in a kind of moralistic way. No, no, Mm -hmm. on the contrary, you you have to see Homer as doing something much more um, sort of culturally and anthropologically basic. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at Homer um, in that light, as sort of the sort of privileged source of an early text um, that hasn't yet been sort of infected by generalization and abstraction, then, then you're going to see um, earlier, you're, you're going to see um, the soil out of which philosophy will eventually grow, but, but the soil cannot be identified with the plant. So it, it, would I be right then in saying that Vico is, um, he's criticizing pseudo-sophisticates who have then made um, Homer into a pseudo-sophisticate by claiming him to be a philosopher. And Vico's saying, no, 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 no. It's much more important to be a poet. It's much more to be important to be the poet, in fact, the kind of poet that Homer was, and that we have to understand him as that poet. Right. Yeah, we have to understand him as that poet. And so we can't impose, say, um, even even very noble ideas that, that Vico is you know, somewhat sympathetic with, you know, say, say proposals from Plato. Uh-huh. We, we can't read Homer as if he were a kind of lisping Platonist. We, uh-huh. we have to appreciate him in all of his otherness and all of his, you know, crudeness and roughness. Otherwise, we're, we're going to simply take our own somewhat um, uh, abstract uh, ways of thinking, and, and we're just going to impose them on Homer and thereby miss what is truly uh, distinctive and sublime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jason, I don't know if you want to say anything about Homer and the Sublime. Uh, I know we've talked about this before. But, yeah. I would just, I would uh, uh, sort of to build off of, um, to amplify Rob's point, uh, I think, so, I mean, people who who sort of try to do a quick kind of who's who on, on, on Vico may, may quickly learn on Google or something like that, that um, he he claims to discover that, that the traditional notions about what it means for for Homer to be an author himself are right. are um, highly questionable and are themselves a kind of um, uh, anachronistic imposition on what it means to to be an author that generates a poem like the Iliad or the Odyssey. So by by recovering sort of the foreignness and crudity um, and sort of primordial character of Homer, locating it backwards and then. Giving us the to mean the means through the new science to sort of um, you intellectually be able to re-engage with that that phenomenon on its own terms. He also sort of calls into question that the idea that Homer Homer himself is a person, as we would normally understand an author. Uh, Homer Homer is a poetic character, um, and the, the the German philological apparatus will come to discover this several decades later in the century, but, but Vico sort of puts his marker on the table and says um, that, 
that Homer himself is not not a, a bard or a scribe or something like that sitting um, sitting sitting in a room um, or whatever uh, according to some kind of practice of, of generating poetry. But Homer himself is a kind of placeholder for the collective sort of um, understanding of an entire people. And this becomes incredibly important in, for example, understanding issues. I mean, it, your college, the people who are reading Homer right now may have to take a midterm exam comparing um, the Iliad and the Odyssey and sort of thinking about the differences between those two works. Um, and you could go on and on about, the, about that. But if you were to imagine that, that um, the, the works are substantively different and that the person that generated them is really a people, not a person, then what we see is that the modifications from uh, the, the sort of development over time from the Iliad to the Odyssey itself is a kind of historical reflection of the development of the Greek people. That is to say that we could we could begin to mark the changes in tenor and manners and um, um, whatever characteristics of, of the later poem, the Odyssey, in terms of the historical development of a people and the shift in their own sensibilities. If that makes sense, it does. Which, yeah, which is remarkable in a certain kind of way. Um, and for for this guy in the in the backwater of Naples to be sitting around, sort of thinking his way into this discovery, which is. I think essentially in its basic contours accepted as, as fa a fact uh, in terms of mm -hmm. contemporary Homer studies uh, mm -hmm. is, is quite remarkable. And it the implications is. Is, are, are extraordinary in terms of how it is that we would re-engage beyond somebody, somebody like Homer to a pre-literate culture that is generating similar kinds of artifacts, but does, that, that, that they are not registered in the historical record um, through the means of sort of like writing or recording or even oral transmission. Um, mm. uh, you, you, you feel as though like as you, as you move backwards in time, um, the, the prospect becomes both uh, very extraordinary and also sort of get, gets very, very murky uh, the, at the back of the forest there, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's finish with uh, book four. Um, which is, uh, I don't know if this is the shortest book, but very nearly the shortest book, um, where he devotes to the, the rise and fall of nations. Uh, is this, um, is, is Vico reappropriating re Greek ideas of the cycles of history, or is he doing something different? Yeah, well, he's definitely not doing it out of thin air. Um, no. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, I mean, Vico certainly mentions Polybius and, uh, yeah, I think it's fair to assume that he's drawing from Polybius. He's drawing uh, probably also from Plato. Um, maybe not so much in the cycles part, but in the idea that there's a um, sort of a, there's a gradual descent uh -huh. um, from uh, the, the best regime to a progressively worse uh, regimes, um, democracy, oligarchy, uh, democracy, and then tyranny. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I. So I mean, I, I do think Vico is drawing upon a. Greek thought, but, but he also emphasizes that um, uh, at the end of the cycle, I mean, that there will be a return to the beginning, but it's not a simple return. Um, the, 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 any return that actually happens, I mean, you can see this in book five, will still occur on a new foundation. So sometimes people will say that the Vico's image of history is not so much that of a circle, but, but, but that of a spiral. So, so you, you have the recurrences, but that he combines that with a kind of uh, movement that isn't a simple um, repetition, but uh, whether or not that actually amounts to any kind of progress or not is a, is a much more difficult question. Mm -hmm. 
What do you think, Jason? Um, what, what other Greeks might be mentioned besides uh, Polybius and uh, Plato? I would say probably, I mean, Polybius is certainly the, the locus classicus. I, I think for, for a student who is sort of interested in, in, in really carefully investigating this, probably the, the second point of contact for investigating is the way that Polybius himself is incorporated into um, the discourses on Livy by, by Machiavelli. So I, I would say that um, if you were to try to sort of trace the, the, the history of influences um, it would be, I mean, there are, there are more sophisticated ways of doing it, but probably it would be a transfer of something, something like Polybius into something like Machiavelli. And then, and I think that's important to render explicit because it helps sort of, I don't know if um, Machiavelli is an ally or an antagonist. He probably uh, sort of clearly manifests himself as an antagonist, but um, Vico's relationship, it would be f far too complicated to get into it, I think. But Vico's relationship yeah. to Machiavelli is very complicated. And yeah. so sort of recognizing that, I would say probably the, the principal advantage that somebody like Vico has over uh, like somebody like Polybius is that he has he has the, middle, the record of the Middle Ages to look back to. And so the mm -hmm. Middle Ages look to him. Uh, very much like a kind of, I mean, we call them the dark ages sometimes, or some people refer to them as that. And there's a kind of sense in which there's a, a step backwards. But uh, Vico would be the first one to recognize, and it's in some ways obvious, while it's a step backwards, it's not a return to the primordial beginnings either. So you right. see you see a repatterning, as Rob was saying, like th certain kinds of things reemerge, which would, we would associate with the with earlier um, uh, or uh, beginnings. And yet... Um, that's not a. It's not a complete reset. It's not a total. Yeah, yeah I have to say, it's not it's a total reset. Yeah. No, and it's. Uh, you know, there are people never stop writing books about the cycles of history, uh, which probably uh, leads to lower life expectancy for many historians who read them. Uh, and yet, uh, and Vico is so far ahead of those people. Um, it's really quite astonishing uh, how sophisticated and, and deep this is. It really, one of my greatest uh, pleasures of reading this book was really getting into his thought about this, the way that things, things happen. Uh, it, it basically is, Vico is the person who came up with the idea, the past doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm. Um, <laughs> that to me is a pretty good gloss on, uh, uh on book five, at least, mm -hmm. um, so let's uh, tie things up here. Um, we've been going way over, uh, but for for the four or five people who are still listening, um, how was Vico first received? As I indicated, uh, it wasn't really. Um, what happened uh, to it, uh, and then how did it? How did? It, how was it discovered? Because it I, I, is it too much to say that it was discovered rather than rediscovered? Yeah. Robert, yeah. you want to take that? Well, sure. I mean, there, it's a complicated story, and I, I just very tell it very quickly. approximating it. So very quickly, <laughs> yeah. he finds his way into uh, continental Europe in the 19th century through uh, um, Jules Michelet, mm -hmm. the, the French romantic, who um, takes uh, portions of the new science and translates it into French. Um, so that, that's one um, uh, line of transmission. Uh, Goethe did read Vico uh, hmm. during his Italian journey, but it's not clear how carefully he read him. Mm -hmm. And so I, mean, I wouldn't want to put more emphasis on that than is appropriate. Um, it is clear that Marx read Vico. Hmm. Um, class struggle is certainly not a concept that is uh, foreign to uh, Vico. And uh, some people have argued that uh, 
Marx's own thinking about uh, class conflict and class struggle, what was uh, to, to a degree informed by, by his reading of uh, not only Hegel, but, but also Vico. So, um, so Vico was there in the background for some of the most important, uh, well, Goethe, three of the most important thinkers of the, of the 19th century. Yes, he, he, he was. And I do think, I mean, it's the uh, movement in uh, 19th century German philology uh, was quite important. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that some of the leading lights of the German philology, such as uh, uh, F.A. Wolf, uh, did read Vico and uh, knew about his uh, discovery of the true Homer. But they were somewhat uh, reluctant to acknowledge that because uh, I, mean, I, I think what Vico would call the uh, conceit of nations or the, the, the vanity of the nations uh, <laughs> has some role to play here. So yeah, it, also, it also is a, it's a little embarrassing uh, when you're, you've developed this really rigorous science of philology and then to find that that this guy in Naples had kind of done it through a combination of intuition and genius. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, Exactly. And, and even today, I mean, I, I find that, um, I mean, I, it's not clear to me how well known Vico is to a practicing classicist uh, writing today. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't hear Vico mentioned as much as um, he might be mentioned, but uh, I suppose I'm not exactly impartial here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jason, you want to take that any further? The reception history? Yeah. I mean, it's a, as, as, as Rob said, it's a, it's a very complicated history. I think the Goethe... Uh, the, the Goethe story is is well worth um, having a look at. It's in Italian Journeys, um, mm -hmm. and it 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 it's it's helpful in, in one important respect. It the the kind of uh, the way that Goethe tells this encounter is that he 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 meets one of um, Vico's um, Italian devotees. So there, the, the, it's important to note mm -hmm. that there was that that Vico impacted uh, in very very profound ways. Um, it, some of his contemporaries, and that that impact was carried forward. But the way that Goethe describes it with his usual sort of class is um, <laughs> uh, with a little bit of coolness as to the kind of, um, it's a, it's a, it, it has a bit, I hope this is not too much of an exaggeration, it almost feels like it's the scene from Apocalypse Now where the photographer at the end of the movie is talking about Kurtz. And, and you, you see Goethe a little bit sort of um, holding himself at a distance from this person who sort of takes him in, back into a room, which is like almost a shrine that has this book in it um, and sort of introduces it to him. But to, to Goethe's credit, he, he sort of, um, he's, he has a kind of um, sense of the, uh, maybe the zaniness of this person's reaction to Vico, which is actually, frankly, and probably Rob and I are not to be excluded from this, characteristic of many of the people who sort of find themselves attracted to Vico. Um, there's a zaniness <laughs> there, I suppose. Um, but um, you see Goethe's sort of comment is something like, um, there, there's uh, something quite good in this book. Um, that it deserves much further consideration. So it's not clear, as Rob said, um, how deeply uh, I think there is some account of him bringing this back to Germany with him um, and it having some influence from there. But but even on a sort of casual inspection in this in this shrine in this person's home, um, he realizes that there's actually something something quite important here. Um, and so uh, and that that I see I see that as kind of a in in a, a crystallization. Uh, one of the ways in which Vico, who does not enjoy a continuous reception from from his lifetime until now, say like Descartes, um, mm -hmm. as sort of um, having nascent the ability to sort of reignite uh, across various points in the 19th and 20th century, and now in the yeah. 20th century, a that's kind a of very 
deep interest in him. That's a very nice way to put it. The, the reignition of interest, yeah, because it, yeah. it does seem in the in sometime in the late twentieth century. I mean, that thing he reignited with a vengeance. I mean, um, I, I'm not sure what what are your thoughts about why. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it may be that people rediscovered Fico's own desire to bring together you know, the universal and the particular, the ideal and the real, and, and to put them into some kind of uh, sort of rapprochement or some kind of symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people would, would go to Hegel for that, but uh, I think there were some people who um, didn't want to be encumbered by some of the systematics of Hegel, mm-hmm. uh, but, but found a cognate uh, insights in, in yeah. Fico. Developed yeah. in a somewhat different way, and so yeah. you had a Benedetto Croce in Italy, mm-hmm. who was a profound student of both um, Hegel and Vico, and the same would be true of R.G. Collingwood, mm-hmm. who was extremely important for a 20th century historical thinking, and he he translated a uh, Croce's uh, uh, book on Vico, and uh, I think he's a very important thinker in his own right, and so yeah, you you, you have a, a Gadamer in a Truth and Method um, engaging the uh, work on the Ratio Studiorum that we mentioned earlier. And uh, it's uh, taking up with the quarrel of ancients and the moderns. I mean, so the idea that there might uh, be a way of coming at uh, truth about uh, human and divine things that isn't um, dependent on a single method. I mean, that's a very important theme for Gadamer and the hermeneutics. And so, yeah, I, mean, I, I think there are a variety of uh, ways in which uh, 20th century thinkers find their way back to Vico. <laughs> Uh, finally, um, I'm curious uh, to know what you have in- learned yourselves. What's the most important teaching I mean, that you've learned from Vico? Uh, Jason, you want to take that first? Yeah. Okay. I mean, this would be, yeah, I guess a little on the personal side. I mean, I, 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 I would go back to a, a point that I made pretty early on in your first question about um, the who's who. I think um, for me, Vico, and I, I'll, I'll elaborate just a little bit on this, but I think Vico sure. is, is a... Uh, offers a kind of uh, way of living a certain kind of philosophical life within the contours of um, the institution of a university in a way that has, a, I think, an appropriate and healthy sense of one's own dignity. I don't know if you, you know, the, the vanity of, of university life is, is can be a little <laughs> bit crippling sometimes. And so sort of whole, having a sense of um, sort of what, what constitutes one's dignity, but that, that's not co- incompatible with a kind of humility has been sort of an important um, lesson for me. The backstory on that, actually, Rob and I are comp- more or less the same age. So we're sort of, um, you know, we're, we're in the same place in terms of where we are intellectually. But I actually sort of encounter Rob and I first met um, when I was trying out um, graduate school for the second time. Um, and the first time, <laughs> the first time didn't go so well. And so it had put me behind. And I was actually Rob's graduate assistant um, uh, in my, my early on. And um, so I, he and I hit it off okay. Uh, and so I, I decided to take a class, a seminar on Vico with him. And Rob, very generously at the beginning of this seminar, had offered all of the participants an opportunity to kind of sketch their intellectual biography, which I'll give you a very short version of. I, I had decided I, I wanted to try to be a, uh, what Vico would call a philologist, a classical philologist looking at Greek and Latin literature. And that didn't go very well. And I took a break and then tried my hand at philosophy the second time. And almost immediately, that was going better. 
But almost immediately, I started to suspect I was one of these grass is always greener on the other side sort of people. I found myself missing the philologists after I wasn't around them, even though I could barely uh, survive around them the first time. Um, and so I was describing this story, and, and Rob's sort of sage response to that was, I think you're going to like Vico, um, which by which, by which he meant um, that if somebody is sort of interested in kind of thinking about reconciling a kind of philosophical interest with philo philological or historical might be the more contemporary way of putting it just sort of mm -hmm. unifying those two things and thinking about them in in deep conversation with one another history and philosophy um vico is not the worst person to not necessarily sort of follow his solution i wouldn't say my solution if that's the right word is 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 his but he's definitely somebody that you can learn something from and certainly respect in terms of the ways in which he approaches that with integrity so mm -hmm. that, that would be my my most important thing learning from Vico and Robert Miner, what would you say that you've learned from what's, what's Vico's teaching? I think he's big on teachings. Uh, uh, he is. And so, uh, what's, what's the, what, what have you received from him? Yeah. Something like this, that, uh, if philosophy is to be truly itself, it can't get lost in its own abstractions. It must hmm. somehow be humanizing or otherwise, uh, existentially relevant. Um, in the autobiography, uh, Vico makes a critique of the uh, philosophy of Averroes. Uh, he says that it, it left his people no more humane or civilized than they were before, hmm. and so therefore fails uh, in, in some important way. And now, I, I don't know whether or not that's actually fair to Averroes or whichever uh, Arabic peoples that he had in mind. It probably isn't, but, but I think underneath that is an important idea that if, if philosophy um, is to be worth anything, it, it has to be somehow... Um, humanizing and has to, it has to engage with, with our actual needs and, and it, it ought to be seen as something that grows out of the soil of discourses that are somehow um, prior to it I mean, I mean it, it has to be continuous with uh, you know well, with poetry in the, in the broad sense you know myth mm -hmm. law custom all, all of these sort of primal or elemental aspirations that we have as humans and philosophy can't disconnect itself from those things it rather has to clarify and uh refine them and build upon them, but, but not uh, negate them or, or assert its own um, total independence from them. So for, for me, there's, it's a point about the nature of philosophy and its deep connections with uh, poetry. Yeah, and I would th I think that in uh, in history and hi yeah, and I would think that in some ways I could substitute history for philosophy and everything you just said. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, in autobiographically, I was actually a history major as an undergraduate, yeah. and uh, but then I found myself wanting to ask philosophical questions, but then I got frustrated by the way that so uh, many modes of contemporary philosophical questioning would just be abstract and almost a form of puzzle solving, mm -hmm. and so I, I wanted some connection between philosophy and history, and I, I found that in some of the twentieth century figures. Uh, that I, uh, who in turn, uh, it seemed to have, to, to have discovered that from Vico. So all, all roads led me back to Vico. Yeah. Gentlemen, uh, Jason Taylor and Robert Miner, thank you so much for being a part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a real honor. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rudat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.